0: Hello and welcome to another one of our dental business transaction podcasts. And today I have huge pleasure in talking with Martin Howe, Managing Director at Lilly Head Finance. Martin, welcome. Thank you, Lily. Now, first question for you, please, is can you talk to me and reflect on the first 12 months of Lilly Head Finance? Because we're coming up to our first year anniversary. Tell me how it's been.
1: Well, it's certainly flown by, Lilly. The, the, the time seems to have uh, crack, cracked on immensely. So uh, 12 months has gone very, very quickly. I guess uh, looking back, people might have questioned our sanity in setting up a new finance business in the midst of a pandemic. Um, <laughs> but, but we were convinced we had something different to offer our dental clients and, and specifically the detailed research and analysis we bring to a transaction. And, and the feeling was that that was going to be all the more valuable against the backdrop of COVID-19. Um The comprehensive proposal document, a a clear demonstration that a business can support the level of debt proposed, those things lie at the heart of what we do, but also being able to offer the experience within the management team that comes from working on literally thousands of transactions over 40 years. So we've been delighted so far with the positive response we've had from our dental clients, but also from our tier one lending panel. Deal volumes uh, from August of last year grew very, very quickly. And, and certainly outpaced our original expectations. And so I was absolutely delighted to have been able to recruit Christian Riley to the team just before Christmas. I and mean, he will hopefully be the first of a number of experienced practice finance consultants we'll bring in over the next couple of years.
0: That's great to hear, Martin. And I know how busy you are, because obviously you've also drafted in the expertise of our analyst, Zita Christa, and um, other support staff to help you. So that's good. And as you said, It really has surpassed all our expectations, hasn't it? Because we put together the forecast of anticipated business and you really are smashing it out the park, as they say. Is it smashing or knocking it out the park? Football analogy for you there, Martin. I think it
1: feels (laughs) like smashing. (laughs)
0: That's cool. Um, So I suppose the obvious question to ask you, Martin, is what impact has the pandemic had on the bank's credit appetite for dental transactions? What are you seeing?
1: Okay, I mean, that, that's, that's a question, Lily, I probably would have answered quite differently a few months back. I, I guess when we opened for business last August, uh, most, most banks were still unsure as to the short and obviously the medium-term impact of COVID on the dental sector. Um, we did see some lenders withdraw from deals that had been in flight pre-lockdown, um, but fortunately we were able to call on some of our other Tier 1 panel to help those clients through into a new transaction on actually almost more competitive terms. Um, We also saw some lenders move their loan to cost ratios down on both freehold lending and also goodwill lending. Not not particularly dramatic, but five to 10%. And and this did have an impact on buyers who then had to find more, more deposit. More recently, we've seen those same lenders return to their previous loan to cost ratios, So the clock's gone back again to pre COVID levels. And I'm also seeing specialist healthcare banks competing very aggressively for deals that we tender. Pricing moved up slightly last year in response to the pandemic, but it's now moving back down. And, it, and it's quite clear lenders want to grow their dental assets. I guess it's it's probably worth remembering that lenders' expectations in terms of detailed information, both the financial sort and also the non-financial sort, have not diminished. And and we do spend a lot of time crafting a proposal document. Just sending a prospectus and a set of accounts to banks rarely achieves the best result. And our clients welcome the analysis which we share with them. I'm also seeing quite a big upsurge in refinancing cases recently. Um, some owners are seeking more competitive terms. Others are expressing disappointment with a particular bank support during the lockdown period. Others see this as an opportunity to reinvest in the business, whether that's in equipment or a refurb of the premises. And some are thinking about that follow on acquisition, that sort of mini group proposal. These refinance proposals tend to be a little less straightforward and they do require an experienced advisor to build the case. But I've found there are banks out there who are keen to work with experienced operators and will offer very competitive terms.
0: So, Martin, just for the benefit of people listening, does a purchaser or an existing operator always have to produce a business plan? Even if they have an established relationship with the bank, they know all about them. um, When they're looking for funding from a bank, and if so, what should it always include? Let's talk about business plans.
1: I mean, the answer to that question is yes, but if you're working with us, then it's no. <laughs> if that makes any sense <laughs> at all, um, you know. I, I, you know, some clients do stress out about the fact that they've been asked for a business plan, and uh, you know, some some banks still do. But you know, fu- fundamentally, it's it's our job to help with that. So if we take the example of a practice purchase, we'll take responsibility for writing up. Uh, a detailed report on the practice, which which covers things like the specific location of the practice in town, the proximity of the rail station, the the other transport links, bus routes. Um, But we also look at local demographics um, and and does that have a good fit with the practice, the local competition as far as we're able from from public sources, the the staffing of the practice, both pre-purchase and post-purchase when the new owner takes over, what the turnover mix of the practice is and the treatment range but then then we also talk to the client about about their plans to run the practice what working hours they they envisage doing the remuneration formula for all of the clinical performers any new treatments they might want to introduce, and also their, their strategy on pricing their, those treatments. So we, we build out a personal strategy for the business in the proposal document, so that the bank can see quite clearly what the, what the acquiring party will do once, once that, that purchase completes. Now, if, if details are missed in a proposal document, then, ask, then lenders will ask a lot more questions. Questions lead to delays, delays lead to potential risk of a lot of the opportunity if you need to put an in quickly. So we know what lenders are looking for and we regularly check with them that all of the key areas they focus on are being addressed in our papers so that they get one document and one financial presentation that enables them to take that case straight, straight to underwriters. We often get referred to dentists who've gone onto the high street to find a lender. Um, typically, they find that process not only time consuming, but ultimately unproductive. Wor- worst case, they've used a non-specialist broker to app- approach a range of banks and they've received a decline. And once a bank declines a case, it's, it's almost impossible to get that overturned. So you really only have one chance to get it right. And you need to stack, stack the cards in your favor by, uh, by picking a, a good experienced corporate finance advisor. So once we fine tune the proposal, we then select the right banks to approach for a specific case. And also also importantly, select the right individual in the bank to review it. So the answer is, you know, yes, there needs to be a detailed business plan. But, you know, it's, it's, it can be done on a joint basis between the dentist and, and, and the credit broker uh, to, to, to convince the bank that this is a case that they should be backing
0: Well, it makes every sense, you know, and one of the things we always say is we set up all our clients to win. We never set anyone up to fail. Um, Everybody's time poor. And a lot of dentists are clinically quite brilliant, but of course, they don't have the business acumen or the experience or it could be rusty. So it makes every sense, doesn't it? You know, get, get that expert help.
1: Yeah, I mean, for some people, it's a once in a career opportunity. You know, not everybody goes on to, to to build a group group of practices. For some people, it's it's a practice they buy and they they operate that for thirty years. So it's really important to get that right, particularly when you've got you know deposits and legal costs on the line. It, it can be an expensive failure if you don't get that process right.
0: Now, Martin, let's talk about something that, as you know, I feel very strongly about this. So, for the benefits of people listening, um, let's talk about buyers who come in looking to put in an offer on one of our listed practices, and they tell me they're waiving a certificate from a broker that says they can borrow up to £2 million. True or false?
1: You know, It's not a rule of thumb multiple on an individual's net asset position. That's, that's, that's very far from, from, from the reality. You've got to, you know, I've got to acknowledge that the personal asset base of an applicant is important to the bank, because it shows evidence of savings, it shows evidence of personal wealth creation, and it's also for the pank, uh, a potential plan B in the event of difficulties with with the practice further down the track. However, fundamentally, it's the practice profits which serves the loan, and re- they require detailed analysis. So, a, a proof of funding statement that claims to demonstrate an ability to borrow a million pounds, or as your example, two million pounds. Are uh, really very very wide of the mark indeed, and 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 typically most experienced sales agents know know this. Uh, we we do proof of funding, but that that starts with the historic trading results and a detailed operational model, which we then use to forecast a sustainable operating profit. So we don't we don't we don't sort of investigate the the clients. Net asset position and apply multiple. We're, look, we're looking at the practice that the, per, the purchaser is buying, and then we can then pinpoint the level of debt a practice can comfortably afford. And we do this work before we show the case to lenders, and this takes the guesswork and also the crossing of fingers out of the exercise, because there's nothing worse than you know the, the broker that sort of sends sends the accounts and the prospectus up to the uh, to the bank and then basically crosses their fingers that they're going to get the right result. You know, we like to think that we've already done the analysis and we've already looked at it from the bank's perspective. So we try and get around the other side of the table and look at it from the other side. And if there are flaws and things that need to amend, then we would talk to the client about that and see whether we can find mitigants for any of the risks that the bank will identify. So, yeah, proof of funding, yeah, it's it's often flashed around and I've seen those certificates myself. But it's, uh, it's 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 not it's not about people's net asset base and a multiple of five times. It's about the practice and its debt capacity.
0: Thank you, Martin, for clarifying that one. Um, and I think that's very important for people to remember and not to be just you know sold or fobbed off with this idea. Here's a nice little certificate. Wave this around and it'll get your foot in the door. Because as we know, it's it's really not worth the paper it's written on. Mostly tomorrow's fish and chip paper, as they say. <laughs>
1: i will going
0: have that tonight, actually. <laughs> Very nice. OK, now, Martin, I've got a question here from one of my team um, who've asked me to relay to you, uh, banks talk about committed terms on loans. Can you explain what does this mean? And if a buyer doesn't have a committed loan, should they be worried?
1: That, that, that is that is a good question. And, you know, banking terminology, you know, unless unless you've worked in a sort of a corporate corporate lending environment, sometimes this can be quite confusing. But it is important to understand because it does have some significant ramifications for you if you borrow money on a committed or an uncommitted basis. So if a bank makes you an offer of finance, you know, you'd expect that they are committing those funds to you for the whole full term of the loan. Uh, provided you meet your side of the bargain, which um, does include making the monthly repayments, of course. Um, depending on the debt level, and, and talking here of loans below a million pounds usually, most lenders are making an offer of finance for the full repayment term. So whether that's 10 years, 15 years, 20 or more years. However, it's implicit in the agreement that the borrower, in turn, will honour the terms of the loan, the security they've provided, and the other specific terms and conditions. By contrast, some banks offer letters which specifically quote a commitment term, which can be significantly shorter than the actual repayment term. It's most often five years, and then it rolls over in five-year committed periods until expiry of the loan itself. The the, the best analogy I I can come up with is the short lease, where you've got a 15-year term, but the landlord has a break clause year five and year 10. And in this analogy, the landlord is the bank. So the lender can decide at year five, and then at year 10, to either roll the loan over for a further period, although they may take a fee for that. Or alternatively, they may seek to vary the terms of the loan, which could include the pricing or the security. And that would be a condition of renewing it. Worst case, they may decide they don't want to renew at all and could ask you to refinance. And that that latter course could be due to diminished credit appetite for the sector or a capital adequacy issue. I mean, if you think back to the the banking crash back in 2008, you know, a lot of bank lending to property companies was on five-year committed terms. And the banks were very keen to reduce their exposure to the property market. And so when those five-year commitment periods end, the, the borrowers were, were effectively forced to refinance, and a lot of that money ha- had to be raised in the alternative finance market. On the, on the positive side, the shorter the commitment period, the lower the price of the loan usually. So it, it can be quite tempting for some borrowers to take a five year commitment, but with a 15 year amortization. But it is important to talk through the option you've been given with an experienced corporate credit broker your lawyer or your accountant, who can help you assess the risk to the business of taking a loan with a short commitment period. It's not something to be taken lightly. The other thing that people out there should be aware of if they're an existing borrower, and you know you're within six months of a commitment period expiring, it might be a very good idea to check in advance with the bank and get it in writing what they plan to do at expiry. So that to give you time to organise a tender of your finance requirements, should the message be that terms are going to be very different for the next five year period. We are seeing this happen with a couple of banks who were previously very active in the sector, but for different reasons are looking to reduce the size of their asset book. So I would always recommend to clients that they keep that facility letter document quite close to hand and regularly review it. And if there are, if there is a committed period that's coming up for expiry, rather like a lease break, takes take some action now.
0: Great, Martin. Thank you for clearing that up. That's very good, and I'm sure we're going to get lots of inquiries on the back of that for either reclarification. Can you go through that again, please, Martin? Can you send me information? And of course, we we can we can help with all the above.
1: I often have to go through it a couple of times, and I, and I quite understand it. It, it. it does it does take a lot of understanding the distinction between a repayment term and a commitment term. But but it is it is an important thing to get right. Um, so for some clients, you know, a five year commitment actually suits them strategically. You know, they may they may have you know a, an exit plan in five years, or they may want to make a further acquisition, or there may be a merger coming. And it might make sense to do that. But um, yeah, always take good advice on that one.
0: Um, one of the things, Martin, we're seeing at the moment, as I've mentioned before, I think, um, is we're seeing a lot more interest in squats, startups. Um, and the feedback from some people to my team is that they're finding it hard to find the finance for a startup practice at the moment. So if you're a dentist and you're looking to increase your chances of raising funding for a squat, what should they do?
1: Okay, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, many associate dentists who, who've, who've got the ambition to own and operate a dental practice will, will have at some time or another looked at the option of a start, start-up. I mean, it's a so-called squat practice. Uh, the, the motivation may be partly the, the cost of buying an established practice in the geographic area they're targeting. But it's also often a dentist's wish to design a practice from scratch to fulfill their, their vision of the type of business they want to work in and the, and, the, and the type of practice they hope their patients will love. You know, cert- spot practices certainly require a clear vision, but strong management skills and also the energy and determination to carry it through. It's not, not for the faint-hearted. And then once you open, of course, there's that reserve of self-belief you need, and also the cash, whilst the patient list grows to a level which will support the fixed overheads of the business, and importantly, earn the dentist a living. I mean, startup costs can sometimes look very similar to the purchase of an established business. retail units will often require modification to accommodate the practice floor plan. There's also plumbing, electrics, flooring, lighting, general fitting out, and that can form a significant proportion of the budget. If the dentist has got a strong clinical and ideally some management experience, um, then a good level of personal assets as a plan B, then it is possible to get 100% of the cost of the chairs, the cabinetry, and the large equipment on finance through our partner business. However, credit appetite amongst the clearing banks for funding of the build element, and also the marketing, professional, and other setup costs can be a little more challenging. But with a good business plan, detailed forecard, we've been able to help clients launch successful what practices. So my advice is, to talk to us at a very early stage. We can give you some help.
0: Great. And, and as you just mentioned, we have a partner company that can help people with asset funding for all Correct. the uh, comparatively smaller gear, the chairs, the equipment, et cetera. So um, obviously, yeah. to talk to you if they need advice on any of that. Um, that's very good advice, thank you very much. As I say, we are seeing a rise in the interest, which is good, whereas perhaps four or five years ago, um, mm-hmm. there wasn't much of an appetite for them. It, I think it just needs a robust um, understanding that you've really got to be committed You have to be very tenacious and fully understand about marketing as well as building a a business, the financial modelling. Um, Unless, of course, you bring with you an established client base, you bring your own goodwill, which is always a good way to start and have colleagues and friends that are willing to sublet surgeries. As you say, it's it's the whole wraparound thing, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I mean, there are are other ways of doing it. You know, sometimes you can buy a patient list off a retiring dentist We've maybe trading from home we've done some successful transactions there where yeah it's a squat but it's not a squat with no patients um you're actually buying in a patient list it just gives you that that bit of start but if you're completely greenfield then and you've got high street competition then it can be a long haul and so you're right to highlight marketing skills is, is very important
0: so martin i know that um Obviously, let's talk about the money side of things, fees, because, you know, credit brokers charge fees for arranging debt and managing the negotiations with the bank. How does a dentist know whether or not they're getting value for money? And, and you know, we hear this all the time. You know, people are punting around looking for the cheapest. Let's talk about the value for money and the value that you bring.
1: OK, I mean, there's, a, there's an old saying which you you'll, you'll know definitely that there's no such thing as free lunch. Um, Similarly, there's there's really no such thing as a free credit-broking service. The the client is going to have to, or the client, the dentist, must expect some trade-off for this apparent generosity. Now I I know most specialist dental finance brokers charge dentists a fee for raising debt, and and also importantly, managing the negotiation with the bank. So, So how does the dentist know whether they're getting value for money? Should we just go with the cheapest quote? After all, broking is a commodity. I suppose people might think. However, would you instruct a lawyer to protect your interests and undertake an acquisition if they said they wouldn't charge? What, what message does that convey? If, if I had to choose a specialist dentist with implant treatment, would I select by price alone or would I do some research first? I mean, I, I would I want to know how long the dentist's been qualified in that specialism, how many implants they've placed, what do their reviews look like? What do other dentists know about them? And then in the consultation, I want to, want to get an impression that they're pretty knowledgeable about, about, about implantology. I'd also look at the pricing and see if it's consistent with the market when I've done, that, done my research. So if I'm being offered a heavily discounted price or no fee at all, that, that, that will, will either tell me that the person is inexperienced or the demand for their services is extremely low. Um, at the end of the day, you know, credit brokers are selling their time as well as their expertise and time's limited. So I would say to a, a dentist not to put yourself in a position where you're a guinea pig for a relatively inexperienced clinician. When everybody's got to start somewhere. But if we think again about the typical acquisition, you might be risking your deposit and a lot of transaction, transaction costs on someone new to the process. So you know why? Why not undertake a similar exercise to what you would do if you were choosing a dentist? And well, I, I would sort of go on the website. There's a good place to start. But there's there's LinkedIn profiles you can review. It will certainly give you a good idea of the uh, the individual advisor's personal CV, and there will often be client recommendations on there. But I'd go further than that. I'd ask around. I'd ask ask colleagues. I'd ask professional advisors. You know. Remembering that the tender process is is really the only first part Um, and the experienced credit broker can help you get into the detail of individual lenders offers, help you through that next big stage of underwriting and then and then be on hand for what could be four to eight months to work through the regulatory and legal process. I mean, it's, it's not uncommon for issues to arise which relate to the finance, and an experienced credit broker can help interpret the situation, explain the the issue from the lender's perspective, but also from the client's perspective, and hopefully find a way through you know a resolution. And such interventions can be worth you know a multiple of any fees a broker might charge for keeping their hand on the teller. The dental community isn't isn't that large, really, although the credit-broking community specifically. So once you've shortlisted a couple of firms, I'd organise a telephone conversation conversation or consultation. I'll ask lots of questions. It's the best way to find out if somebody has a detailed knowledge of the sector and bank credit appetite. And and I think the, the final thing to remember on this is that some banks pay commission to credit brokers for introducing business. And for the dentist, you want the best deal, not the bank's deal. So engaging a credit broker who's motivated to prioritise your interests because you're paying them to do so, to me, just makes good business sense.
0: Martin, this has all been really interesting. Thank you. And I think just to to finish off our discussion today, um, what top tips do you have for making a successful funding application to the bank at the moment? What are the key must dos for a dentist out there looking to get funding?
1: Okay. Um, I mean, I'm going to keep this simple. I mean, I've got to say that number one is use your commercial finance broker. You know, I mean, that's, that's the theme of, you know, of a lot of the questions today, really. Well, I'm one that's specialised in the dental sector. But, but do your due diligence. You know, look for the experience, look for the recommendations before you select an advisor. And then I'd start pulling together some information. So a lender will want to see your last three years associate accounts if you're a first-time buyer. Um, and or your tax returns. So make sure you've got those to hand. Make a note of your grossing figures over the last three years and, that, and have your explanations ready for any significant variances in your performance over that period. Have a look through your household expenditure. Start, start to work up an income and expenditure account uh, and make a list of any finance commitments specifically. So car loans, uh, personal loans, credit credit cards and collect together six months personal bank statements, as the banks will undoubtedly be asking for those very shortly after you accept uh, indicative terms. Uh, And then I'll brush up the CV um, and remember to highlight any management experience or courses and knowledge of practice finance, because these are some of the things that the the lenders will be comforted by. And then finally, I'd, I'd engage a broker before the viewing, you know, clients value the previewing agenda we can provide. You know, we 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 provide questions to ask, further information to request, and importantly, a detailed explanation of the financial accounts and what level of debt might reasonably be raised to assist with the purchase. And you know, if if in our judgment you know, the practice, you know, is, is, is not going to work on a financial basis, then we can probably save people some petrol money and uh, they can do something more interesting at the weekend. But uh, I, I would always recommend that conversation, that that sharing of the information ahead of the viewing so that you can make best use of that 40 minutes or so you get walking around the practice.
0: The, the feedback is so good about the uh, the level of professionalism you touched upon when we first started talking about you wanted to do something different. And I know that the feedback has been excellent, hasn't it, from the way that you set out your applications, but also the way you deal with clients right from the get go. And that level of information and that level of understanding, um, which, you know, we're very proud of. And and it's certainly paying great dividends. So well done to you and your team.
1: i thoroughly thoroughly doing this. and I know Christian does as well. So I think if you enjoy something, you know, and you're enthusiastic about it, you know you can you can introduce that energy you know in, into a transaction so uh, yeah no I, I i it's it's been what i've been doing for 40 years and i still love it
0: well martin thank you very much for today um what's the best way for people to make contact with you to have an early discussion or get some advice
1: well personally thank, thank you again for inviting me and, and certainly we'd be delighted to speak to uh, any any potential clients who'd like to talk through a business opportunity even if, it's a, even if it's at a very early stage. Um, the best way to contact uh, Lilyhead Finance is uh, to email us at funding at lilyheadfinance.co.uk and we'll certainly be delighted to uh, to ring re- 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 back at a time convenience yourself and, and talk through those proposals.
0: Martin, thank you again for your time. Keep up the hard work. Um, I know that uh, the team thank you for all the work you do. Uh, We look forward to hearing from anybody that might have any questions, would like to talk to Martin and his team and be assured of a very personal service. Thanks for your time again, Martin. Have a great week. Bye now.
1: Thanks, Lily.